When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hello and welcome back to Snowcast. I'm John Snow and this week's guest is the Reverend Richard Coles. Richard is a musician, author, radio presenter and Church of England priest. He grew up in Northamptonshire and attended Wellingborough Public School where he became a chorister. Richard moved to London in 1981 to pursue his music career working as a session musician in theatre. He joined the band Bronxky Beat as a sax player which is when he met Jimmy Somerville. The following year Jimmy and Richard left to form the Communards. Success followed, but Richard was ill at ease with this sudden fame. The band broke up in 1988, at which time Richard started writing for the Times Literary Supplement. In 1990, after attending a Mass at St Albans, he was suddenly inspired with a newfound faith. Between 1990 and 1994, he studied for a theology degree at King's College London before returning to Northamptonshire and began to seriously consider holy orders. After a 10-year period as a Roman Catholic, he turned to Anglicanism in 2001 and in 2005 was ordained into the Anglican priesthood. For 12 years, Richard was co-presenter of BBC Radio 4's Saturday Live and is regularly a guest panellist on various TV shows. He is now the author of five books, including two novels featuring the character of Canon Daniel Clement. It was a real treat to sit down with Richard and I hope you enjoy our chat as much as I do. Richard Coles, you loved church music long before church doctrine. Can you tell me about your early musicality? Well, it began really with a desire to emulate a flamboyant grandparent. So my, my grandfather played the piano and he used to uh, entertain the troupe, so to speak, and I loved watching him do that in, with what I realise now were smutty songs that I didn't understand. He used to do Stanley Holloway and things like that. And I loved the way he kind of held the room and I wanted to be like that. And then um, when I got to school, I 
had a decent treble voice. So I joined the school choir, which is a good choir, great director of music, nice chapel. And I discovered music in its uh, richness, I think. And like lots of people, you would know about this, John, because you're the same. I was very much formed by singing in, a, in an Anglican choir and sitting in a chapel and listening to the Book of Common Prayer and the authorised version of the Bible and the Canticles of Evensong and, and all that. And it hugely formed me. And you have that wonderful thing of a, a training to a professional standard while you are literally still in short trousers. So it was a great start for a musician. You touch on a very interesting and important element, which is teamwork. And that is what I think singing in a choir really achieved. It certainly did for me at Winchester Cathedral, for example. Yeah, I, I think... If you wanted a foretaste of heaven, then making music with other people in uh, in a heavenly way. And you can have a foretaste of the other place too when it goes horribly wrong. But I think that to, to add your voice and your, your individual voice to a general sound and try to make that beautiful, I think is a wonderful thing. The, the biggest challenge is what happens when your voice breaks. Because there it was, a beautiful sound. And somehow this grating, breaking voice has got to be developed into some kind of adult performance. Did it work well for you? Well, it was actually very traumatic for me because I scratched and clawed my way to be head chorister. And uh, then you get all the solos, of course, but it's exactly at the moment when your voice is on the turn, you get that lovely creamy sound to a boy treble voice that's just about to break. And I was singing, do you remember that Morris Green anthem, Thou Visitest the Earth? Certainly. And I was singing a, a solo in that and I had a lovely, reasonably high note to hold. And in the middle of it, it just went... <laughs> and I realised that I was about to be dethroned, and I was dethroned, and then I had to find my, my new voice. You, you weren't particularly religious. In fact, you started a, an atheist club when you were at school. With the benefit of hindsight, do you think this intellectual curiosity foreshadowed your interest in theology? Yes, I think um, the, the, the danger of faith is not atheism, it's indifference, actually. And I was, I was certain that Christianity, which I found completely fascinating and compelling and congenial, but I was certain that it was a fairy tale and that nobody of any integrity or honesty could possibly cleave to its doctrines. And that seemed to me to be um, as plain a fact as any. So I, but of course what that meant, I was taking it seriously. And I continue to take it seriously, even when I was at my most um, atheistic. I think it was part... I mean, you, I hear it a lot in... I've talked to Richard Dawkins about this, actually, who went, like me, through an English public school and refused to bow his head in prayer as a sign of protest. But that's somebody taking it seriously, of course. Mm. You studied theatre at college. Did you enjoy dramatic roles, or were you more into cabaret and... Musical performance, or coughing even. <laughs> well, I wanted to be uh, Laurence Olivier. I was certain that I wanted to be an actor and that I wanted to be a great actor. Unfortunately, I was not equipped with the talent or the ability to do that. And I can remember discovering that through, if I was ever in a tragedy, I would come on stage and people would laugh. And if I was in a comedy, I'd come on stage and people would look glum. So I was obviously doing something wrong. But I did find that because of my background as a chorister, I was reasonably okay at uh, arrangement and playing and four-part harmony and all that. So I ended up doing theatre music, really, and that was much more suitable. Did you find a supportive peer group at college? And, and did you tell friends that you were gay before you spoke to your mum? Yes, I did. I mean, I was at a, I was at a 
a college of drama and liberal arts, so it would be hard to think of a more congenial place in which mm. to um, in which to talk about your sexuality. But this was in nineteen seventies, and it was still it was tantamount to announcing yourself as a criminal, wasn't it? It was announcing yourself as a criminal if you were doing anything about it. It was a much more hostile world than today, so it was it was tricky. But I also knew that it sort of had to be done. I think. And I was in a place where, where people were sort of tolerant and liberal and I wasn't the only one. So I could do that. And then I decided to reveal to my mother the truth of my sexuality, which came as zero surprise to her, I would say. And you were how old? 16. I mean, that's really pretty young to be sure. Oh, well, I was sure. There was no... I mean, I suppose people talk about sexuality as a spectrum. Well, I think I'm pretty far over on in, into my end of the spectrum. I never had any... I never felt sexual desire for anyone other than other males, actually, and romantically, too, so there was never any doubt about that. I thought it might be a phase I was going through, but it's still I'm still in it. Are you a, a product of a lucky generation when it comes to sexuality? I mean, in the sense that there's been a, an extraordinary revolutionary acceptance of a gay life. Yeah, well, yes and no, I think. So it was a golden age in the sense that liberalizing legislation created a bit more room for us to exist and then we pushed pushed harder and if you look at the index on social attitudes i think in 1980 80 of people thought homosexual relationships were always wrong by 1990 that had shrunk to 20 percent. so there was a huge social change but it also of course coincided with the arrival of hiv and aids so i'm of that generation where i mean two thirds i mean a third probably maybe even a half of the people i knew at that time uh, didn't survive. So that was, you know, a hugely traumatic experience for everyone. But it's also an extraordinary thing to imagine what the Church of England went through in accepting people like you to be in the priesthood, to teach, to pray, to lead. I mean, I think that the Church of England has always been a congenial place for, for gay men, uh, actually, although it was, I think, you know, it, it was nothing that was explicit. But there's a certain reluctance to be too prescriptive I think in the church and there's that you know that commitment to uh, not being too propositional about things I think which gave you a bit of room to do that and also it was churchmen they were all churchmen in those days were very significant in the liberalizing of the liberalizing of legislation around 1967 the Wolfenden report and so on so the church of England led the way there and when I joined it formally it seemed to be that that was a continuing uh, trajectory. Actually, it probably went into reverse, really, because there was a big change when conservative evangelical resistance to change became much more organised and powerful. You moved to London in 1980 and met Jimmy Somerville. Can you take me back in time and describe this young pair when they first crossed paths? Well, it was actually in Gaze the Word Bookshop, just down the road from here, we're talking in King's Cross, uh, in Marchmont Street in Bloomsbury. And it was a bookshop that had been started in that first opening up of the world with um, uh, the sort of first gay activists in the late 60s and the 70s. And it was a bookshop where you could meet people, read stuff that you were interested in. And there was a coffee shop at the back. And I met this small guy from Mary Hill in Glasgow. I think I'd known him for six months before I understood a word he said. <laughs> Completely different sort of life from mine. But we had this common purpose and this common dream which was to find the livable life that we hadn't had before so we we were we threw ourselves in with each we threw ourselves in with each other and it was such an education for me john because 
middle-class, middle-English public school boy. I had no idea what life was like for people who grew up in really tough sectarian tenement existences in Glasgow. And it was immensely powerful experience to get alongside Jimmy and understand how he saw the world, which was different from the way I saw the world. It was an education. Huge education. Yeah, for both of us, I think. I mean, we were very, we were opposites and there's an attraction of opposites, but there's also this stuff that you miss in an opposite because your assumptions are different. And realising that was, was very, was very important to me. As well as Jimmy, you found other birds of a feather, your people, as you put them. What was that community like? Bliss was it in that dawn to be alive and to be young was very heaven. I mean, it was wonderful. It was a group of people who were all had kind of run away to London to try to find this livable life that we dreamed of and couldn't do in Kettering or Glasgow, wherever it was. Um, and so we were a band of brothers, really. And we were energised. We were highly politically activist. We considered ourselves to be part of a wider movement that was about liberation for women, that was about um, respecting new communities that were arriving in London, that changing... Um, city with all its cultural and political dynamics. It was just such an exciting place to be. And we were really up for a fight, and it was a real fight. Margaret Thatcher's first government came in 1979. Ken Livingstone, facing her across the Thames in, uh, at the GLC as a sort of last redoubt of local government, and it felt like this was a fight that you had to engage with. Later in the 1980s, your community was devastated by AIDS. Can you hold on to the joyful memories or are they inexorably linked with that awful loss you suffered? I mean, it's both, I think. I mean, one of the most significant people in all our lives was a chap called Mark Ashton, who was a wonderful guy. He was General Secretary of the Young Communist League, but he was he was an amazing activist, but also incredibly good fun. And he had that power to sort of engage people with ideas and to make you think that you could make this effort. And he was one of the people who started the sport group that we ran to support a, a striking mining uh, community in South Wales, the unlikeliest friendship between two groups of people you might think, but a wonderful one. And then Mark, he had a cough on a Tuesday and he died on a Friday of a form of pneumonia that would normally just immediately be wiped out by antibiotics. But he was the first. And then there was this terrible period of people getting ill and dying because there was no remedy in those days. And it was terrible. And I think I talk about it with friends who came through it with me now, 30 years on. And I find we can talk about it now, but for a long time, we couldn't talk about it at all. It was just too painful. We were just trying to get through it in, initially. Um, but I suppose it leaves such a vivid memory of joy and sorrow at the same time. Um, and well, that, was it also aggravated by hostility? Yeah, I mean, I think what, just at the moment when you felt we were breaking through and in the band Jimmy and I formed then, we were really, we were doing quite well. And you felt that you were, you know, exclusion, attitudes, you were pushing back on the boundary, people's views were changing. And then AIDS came along. And AIDS, I suppose, confirmed the fears that those who were hostile to that might have harboured. And it was announced to be a, you know, a judgment from God on a sinful generation. And so all that activist energy went into trying to do what we could to change that narrative, really. And we were able to... I mean, it changed hugely when the Princess of Wales, Diana, Princess of Wales, as she was then... Um, 
wanted to do that too and mm. went along to a unit that was um, dedicated to the care of people with HIV. And she shook hands with somebody who was HIV positive and it just really made a huge impact on the way mm. people perceive that. And, and I found that, it, I mean, it was hugely challenging to me because I found that the sort of political discourse that I was interested in didn't really have much to offer on that. Mm. And it started to uh, ask, demand of me things that I, I couldn't really find. And that's really when all of a sudden what I remembered of church and chapel from when I was a boy I wanted to connect with it again, and I didn't know what that was about, but I think what I was really looking for was something that had, that could offer me a means to think and do uh, in, those, in those challenges. You're modest about your musical accomplishments, <laughs> but, but you are. Deservedly so. No, but no, rubbish. <laughs> but, but you weren't just, you know, tootling on your saxophone in the uh, communards. You were writing and arranging songs i mean you were yeah. clearly a, a creator well i suppose so i mean but that's the inheritance having been a chorister because i could do that because i knew how it worked so well i was a chorister but it didn't work for me <laughs> <laughs> well um i don't know if you were an instrumentalist as well but I, but i was so I, i'd had the benefit of that training and and also i loved and i still do love um, a rather fusion approach to things because you know my background was classical was called tradition classical music but because i came to london and came out as gay a lot of the soundtrack to that was dance music mm. and what was happening in the clubs. So I had a sort of rich and uh, kind of diverse brew, I suppose. And I was fortunate that that happened. But I would hesitate to describe, I wasn't certainly, um, I mean, also, I hitched my wagon to Jimmy Somerville, John, who just happened to be the most extraordinarily naturally gifted singer you could hope to find. And, uh, and Jimmy just had this extraordinary captivating voice and personality and presence and uh, I was lucky to be part of it. I know you must sing in religious circumstance but do you ever rock? Not really no <laughs> I'm a, uh, uh, I, I sing a lot actually I know I was um, I'm a tenor now so I was a bass actually and I took some singing lessons and discovered I was a tenor and I love singing in a choir hmm. Um, and I love singing that that repertoire, but I'm not really very rock and roll. If I tried to look rock, it's a bit like me dancing a Paso Doble on Strictly. You thought, well, maybe that's not for you, mate. It's extraordinary because there is nothing like it for teaching you teamwork, love. The whole thing was extraordinary. I think, and also I, I think beauty too. There's mm. something about, especially, you know, I think Evensong in a cathedral mm. with some of the great canticles and the hymnody of the Church of England, which so wonderfully expresses mm. the best of us, I think. But that's what's so extraordinary about you, because you're a rocker, and at the same time, somebody who deeply appreciates classical music. I think there's quite a lot of us, actually, John. And you'll find lots of people with careers in, in pop and rock music who are former choristers. Did you ever feel actually comfortable as a, as a, as a pop star, or, or did you always feel a little bit overlooked well you had the shadow of jimmy's light well yes of course and jimmy cast a very long shadow and a deep mm. shadow and i stood in that and i would like to tell you that i didn't mind but i did mind actually because i wanted some glory for myself and i wanted attention for myself and felt that i was slightly robbed of it by jimmy no yeah. wonder you went into the church <laughs> well, well well you could stand in a pulpit and the whole thing was yours. Well, exactly. <laughs> I mean, there is, if you're interested in standing at the centre of people's attention, then they're clear. The difference is, of course, is that when you do that, you don't do that on your own merit. You do it in a representative role. You know, it's not about you. 
It's interesting with the debate about the monarchy. I think when people sometimes shout at the sovereign as someone who wears a golden hat and sits on a special seat, I think what they forget it is not to their own glory. It's because they inhabit a role and perform a function as clergy do. What I find interesting is that you, I think essentially quite a radical character, um, were drawn to the Catholic end of the Church of England. I mean, was it the ritual, the music, or what? It was all that, but I think it was the rigour, actually. And I think like lots of people who leave quite haphazard lives, I think a rigorous system in which all is clear and settled and decided and accounted for has an appeal. What I discovered was that I was more Church of England than I thought I was. And I, I think people, when they get into church life, they tend to either go to an extreme or, or cluster at the middle, and I'm in the middle. It's funny because when I was a journalist, I was a correspondent in Rome, uh, and I was there for the consecration and life of John Paul I. And um, my mother, married to an Anglican bishop in, in England, uh, came out to visit and everything, and she absolutely rocked. You know, the, the thing was a view of Christianity she'd never seen. Yeah. I mean, it is extraordinary, isn't it, if you see the Roman Catholic Church in it, all its unrestrained glory. It is monarchical. It is extraordinarily powerful. It is performative. And I've just come, I was in Spain, and I went to Mass for Pentecost in Valencia Cathedral. Mm. And it's such an assault on the senses. It makes such a compelling case, not just through the clarity of its doctrine, but I think through the sheer power of its presentation. Mm. Can you share with the listener what items you packed when you began the training for an ordained ministry? Well, that's interesting because... Um, I so I gather. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, obviously I took a CD player. That was important, some music. I also took Madeira because it was a sherry drinking college where I went to. And I'm I like Sherry much now, but I didn't then. So I thought I would express a kind of slightly angled view by taking Madeira. So I drank a lot of Madeira when I was at Murfield. And I learned to play bridge and croquet. But it was a very violent clerical croquet in which you know, human depravity was very much on show. You know, I, I'm quite perplexed because I started out talking to you about rock and all the rest of it. But here you are. Signing up for a monastic college, a, a total shock from the comforts of the pop life. I mean, must have been very hard to handle. No, it was wonderful. I loved it. I really? mean, I think, yes, I liked, I, I really loved, uh, I loved the regime. I, part of me will always be at Murfield, which was the college I went to, the community of the resurrection, Anglican monastic community. And a part of me will always be there. I found that it was... It spoke to me in the depths of my being, actually. And I loved getting up early and saying my prayers. And I loved being around other people who'd been doing it for a long time and where the reality of a life of discipleship, the reality of God, was not something that was notable. It just was taken for granted. And it was a great laboratory for how to do what we have to do, which is to be authentic and to engage, which sounds easy, doesn't it? But look at who you're being authentic to and look at who you're engaging with. It's not easy. We were very different. We're a very diverse group of people and trying to work out how we could live together and, and love each other was really tough, but incredibly rewarding. But it's interesting because it seems to me that you're, you were almost on the edge of Catholicism, but you decided to go Protestant. Well, 
What's a Protestant, you see? Um, I have no idea, I have to say, (laughs) even though I'm the son of one. (laughs) Well, my lodging, the Church of England is described as a Protestant and Reformed church, but it's actually a personality disorder because it is also the Catholic, is Catholic traditions go with it, and those are the ones that I most readily respond to. I mean, I like doing Catholic sorts of things, but I know I'm Church of England when I hear the hymns. And when I... What is a Catholic sort of thing? Oh, well, the sacramental life, I suppose. So Mm -hmm. I believe in the real presence in the Eucharist, and I believe that the sacraments are outward visible signs of inward realities. So I believe that scripture and teaching and tradition all serve the purpose of trying to make us to understand and be faithful to God. And cutting to the quick, you mean that the bread and the wine are the blood and the flesh of? Yes, I do. Yeah. So that was at the heart of it, I think. Gosh. Um, but that is faith. Yes, it is. Yeah, it is. It doesn't work any other way. It's amazing. You are a rational human being. I'd like to think I was, yeah. But there is something almost irrational about that. Yes, I think that's right. I mean, it's a matter of faith. And I don't see any reason why faith cannot coexist with a rational existence. But it's not hard to think of examples where you might think that's not necessarily the case. What a life you've led, because you've obviously had to wrestle with all this. Yes, I think so, yeah. And I suppose I've worked out a way of doing it, which I hope is... Um, not ridiculous, although it is ridiculous sometimes, and I hope I manage to do it without too much danger of risking integrity or truthfulness. But it's a beautiful thing that you know that you know this. I mean, you've spent enough time around cathedrals when, for all it's problematic, it's an incredibly beautiful thing. It's rich and it gives you such rewards mm-hmm. and enables you to live a life that nothing else enables, I think. You, you force a confession from me. I mean, I can remember the completely spellbinding experience of singing in the choir of Winchester Cathedral mm. and being drenched in the architecture and in the music. I mean, they really conjured enough stuff to lock you up for life. I mean, it was oh, just yeah. amazing. Yeah. I was ordained in Lincoln Cathedral, which mm. is the most beautiful building in England. Shoot me down, people. Mm. Um, but I, I think it is. Ruskin's also too, so I have authority. Well, if imagine... you find a hill like that and perch a church on the top of it, you're going to be doing pretty well anyway, yeah. aren't you? And, and, you know, to us it's breathtaking. I would imagine what it was like to a sort of medieval pilgrim coming up and seeing this extraordinary building on its hill pointing to heaven. I think that would be very hard not to be drawn into that. Given that you sometimes looked after parishioners in mental distress... Do you find it worrying that the Metropolitan Police is changing its response to mental health incidents? I think clergy and cops alike would tell you that so much of our of our time and resources are taken up now with dealing with what you might call the walking wounded, and these are people sometimes in severe mental distress. Accessing the appropriate health care is so difficult now. The resources are so stretched, the qualifying criteria are so narrow... In Northamptonshire, where I, where I was serving as a vicar, police patrols regularly would go out with a psychiatric nurse as part of the crew because there were so many people they were encountering who needed that kind of care rather than police action, although sometimes they did. And we worked out methods. I remember we had a, a frequent flyer who was a woman who had sometimes be extremely unpredictable and disorderly, and she would come to the door. And sometimes she would do so in states of such distress. We would need to have help. And in the end, I worked out with the police that they weren't able to get the appropriate level of help for her unless she posed a significant risk. So we had to sort of encourage her to threaten us because if she threatened us with a weapon or a bomb, as she would sometimes claim she had, 
then the police had to send a van and that was expensive but once it happened three times they were more likely then to get her sectioned and so she'd be able to get into the appropriate inpatient care but it was a, a sort of carnival of dishonesty that we had to we had to sort of perform in order to get her through the criteria it's a major 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 problem and you know you just walk around the streets of a city or a town and you will see people who clearly should be in some kind of inpatient care or adequate outpatient care who just aren't getting it that is shocking but but true i agree i mean before i even became a journalist i was working at a day center for homeless and vulnerable yeah. teenagers and we were constantly confronted with people who for whom there was no resource yeah and we found in lockdown in particular because in lockdown there were lots of people who utterly relied on a visit from a statutory agency of some kind it simply wasn't happening so in our community we formed a a community support team and we were able to 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 contact those people and with hopefully sometimes appropriate means for the alleviation of their distress but it was the safety net is very very ragged and threadbare i think and lots of people fall through it now and it's and it's a you know i just find it depressing and indeed scandalous that in a rich and developed country we can be so cavalier about how we provide for people in that kind of need everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems but getting therapy has its own problems too like finding the right therapist fitting into their schedule and of course the cost well better help can solve those problems it's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. It's very interesting that in, in talking to you already, I sense that for you, prayer is a great solace. And I wonder if you can explain how it helps you. And do you think in an increasingly secular society, we're poorer for its absence? I don't think I'd describe it as solace, actually. I think I would describe it as power. And mm. I think... A That's very active. Oh, yes. I mean, one of the things I learned in a monastic community was to be disciplined about, about that. And I think what you do, it's good for you, partly because I think... Perhaps meditative practice is simply good for you as a physical person. But I think really it's about putting yourself in the way of God and making sure that you broadcast your signal and you're attentive to what comes back. And often what comes back is not what you think will come back. It's entirely counterintuitive. But there's an unmistakable authenticity about that ping. And if you attend to it, then it might make you more alive to things that matter, I think, and where the real dynamics are in in a problematic and difficult situation. So it's power and strength, I think, is... And the other thing, you know, everyone used to do it, John, and in most cultures in the world, they still do. We seem to be built for it, optimised for it. And when we stop doing it, because we stop, no longer find it authoritative, the, you know, the, 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 the organisations and institutions which invite us to do it, 
Well, where does that go? I think people put it into art, into culture. I'm very struck when you go to an art gallery. There's a sort of hushed and reverent atmosphere there, which we used to take to church. But I don't know if anything does quite... Because I don't think art offers salvation. I think art offers consolation, information, challenge, all sorts of things, but not salvation. And I think religion is the place to go for salvation if you want it. You served in your last parish for 12 years. At what point did you start thinking about the fictional exploits of a priest-turned-detective? Well, priests and detectives are close relatives, of course. Are they? Oh, (laughs) yes, because you are looking at people and places where something has gone mystifyingly wrong and you're trying to work out what's happened. And that often involves just looking at a pattern and seeing a tiny disruption in that pattern which, when you look at it and examine it, might perhaps reveal something significant that's happening under the surface. So there's a lot of that going on. You might might therefore put on the fifth floor of Scotland Yard a a, a bench of clerics to assist. Well, (laughs) it's interesting. My my brother, in real life as a detective, was a detective, now retired, and we would often note similarities in what (laughs) we were doing. Fascinating. Yeah. And also, do you know how many literary vicar detectives there are, clergy detectives? No. 200. Good Lord. So it's not a big leap, I think. And also, for sort of plot purposes, as you will know, this too, vicars get in places. No one ever asks you what you're doing if you turn up in a dog collar. So, and you were always there when things happen. So it's a, a rich furrow. Why did you choose to set your first fictional novel in the year 1988? Well, partly because I was interested in the 1980s. Mm. I was particularly interested in social change in the 1980s. Mm. And, of course, the story of that happening in places like London or New York or uh, Paris is well known. I'm really interested in how social change impacted small, sleepy English villages, because it did. And I think that's, in a way, a more interesting story. So I wanted to write about that. And also, it was simply because I'm not, um, I didn't feel confident enough that I would be able to successfully murder people in an era of mobile telephony and CCTV. It's so much harder to kill people now, John. <laughs> Do you think that shows in the figures? Well, I wonder about that. But I think <laughs> crime is more detectable now because everything is observed. Yeah. So, yeah, that's tricky. Is it easier to write fiction than a memoir? Or did you find a catharsis in writing about your own life and especially grief? Not a catharsis at all, actually. It kind of stoked it, I think, rather than banked it down. But that was not... I wanted to do that. I wanted to... I wanted the full experience, I suppose, and to try to reflect on that. Fiction is different because... Although some people said my memoir reads like fiction. But, you know, <laughs> um, but, but fiction is because you, you, know, you, you create the world, this imagined world, and these imagined people in it. And that gives you a sort of semi-godlike power in a way, I think, until all of a sudden your creation starts to nudge in its own way. And, uh, and I'm now on the third book and enjoying very much the sense that these people in these places are beginning to have their own life in a way. It feels like that. You left two big institutions within the same year, the Church of England and the BBC. Are you missing either? Yeah, I miss being a vicar very much. I love being a vicar. And I sort of don't know who I am not being a vicar. So I'm trying to figure that out, I guess. The stuff I didn't like, well, I didn't, not much I didn't like. I, being obliged to uphold the doctrines and um, appearance of an institution is always you risk eroding parts of yourself, I guess, with that, same with the BBC. But the interesting thing is that you have a particularly comforting voice, which it's a pity to see reduced in any way. 
Well, thank goodness for the podcast, eh, John? So we, <laughs> we can, I continue, continue to proclaim in the marketplace. But you better give us the way to get to the podcast. Well, the podcast is The Rabbit Hole Detectives, available from wherever you get your podcasts. And it's me and Charles Spencer, historian, cat German archaeologist, talking about interesting historical items and things. And possibly concluding different outcomes from what you had originally imagined? Well, yes, the rabbit holes, because we start talking about, oh, what is what is the significance of that? And then before you know it, you're talking about the pets of Louis XV <laughs> or uh, the model for Nanny Doubtfire, that kind of thing. How optimistic are you that in your lifetime, clergy will be able to conduct same-sex marriages in the Church of England? Oh, that's a really difficult question. But I'd like to, I've just come back from Scotland, where those debates have been had in clergy who wish to are able to do so. Clergy who don't wish to are not obliged to do so. In the Church of Scotland or what? Church of Scotland and in yeah. the Episcopal Church, uh -huh. the Anglican Church in, in Scotland. Mm. So it's a changing picture. But resistance to that is very powerful and highly organised. And that's a big live debate. We're having it at the moment. And I don't know where that's going to go. Personally, I don't really want to discuss my sex life with a bishop ever again. <laughs> Most bishops would be too tactful and sensible to ask you about it. But the way our rules at the moment do require them to ask you about it in a way. I don't want to have that conversation, John. I find it degrading. And I've done it enough. I'm not going to do it anymore. How are you adapting to life in a new community without the responsibilities of a parish priest? It must be difficult. It's weird. And also the first thing you remember is that you... Walking around smiling at people when you're not wearing a dog collar just looks sinister in fact, so you need to stop doing that. Also, it's somebody else's parish, and he's doing, David is doing an excellent job, and we disagree about nearly everything doctrinally, but he's a good guy. And, you know, it's his department, it's not my responsibility, it's his responsibility. So I have to just sometimes remind myself that I don't have pastoral responsibility. I'm available to help when required. But what you can't do is to strip out your voice, which is an extraordinarily useful and and inspiring voice i suppose not to me i just sound like a sort of adenoidal jacob Rees-Mogg crossed with the crankies so it doesn't really <laughs> oh work you do yourself down well other <laughs> people say so but it's not you know it's like when you hear yourself on the answering machine you think god i sound like that uh, your upcoming tour is titled borderline national trinket can you tell me the story behind this? Well, there was a period when i was sort of beginning to be noticed for the various things i was doing and somebody in the hearing of my late partner, David, said that I was turning into a national treasure. <laughs> and he revised that to borderline national trinket, <laughs> which I thought was quite nice. So I'm having that. Well, I think we could just strip out the whole thing and just leave national treasure. <laughs> well, thank you. I don't know. Would you want to be a national treasure? Norman? No, it, it asks a lot of you. <laughs> and it also, it's a distorted version of yourself that would fulfill that. This tour leans into your performance background. Yeah. Are you sort of happiest performing or in private contemplation? Well, I suppose I like both, really. I cannot resist the stage and the spotlight. That's so deeply um, habituated that I can't do that. And, of course, it, it feeds my ego in a way which I must consider to be necessary, although I'm very conscious that it's not necessarily a healthy diet. But it's the one, it's who I am, I suppose. So I try to use that to benefit rather than to the discredit, I don't know. When you start as a cleric, people say to you, you'll find your pulpit voice. And I don't mean by that a parsonical tone. I mean the voice which enables you to deliver what you need to deliver. And I think I found mine. And I think I've, I've sort of tuned it for 
my work doing other sorts of things. And also, you know, I believe in God and I believe in salvation and I believe that beyond the darkest, meanest, most depraved act that a human can inflict upon another, there's this inextinguishable light, the dawn of Easter on the far side of the cross that awaits us and offers us the hope of transformation. And I could never, I cannot live in that knowledge without that changing who I am and what I do, I think. And what is the change, precisely, from the life you've led in which you were a priest, offering care, understanding, and much more, to being a citizen who was a priest, and I suppose always will be a priest, but who is going his own way with what he wants to do? I don't know. I mean, it's... I think it's an interesting... I'm in my 60s now. And but when, that's nothing. I'm 75. <laughs> well, but, but I think people... You know, 60s traditionally have been a time when you think about sort of, you know, hanging your hat up and sitting by the fire. And I'm it's not I like that at all. What I find now is that I'm... I, I'd like to say that I feel liberated, and I do feel liberated. Liberated into what? I'm not sure. So... I think I've been a bit wayward lately, actually, and maybe that's just the sort of demob of leaving both church and BBC. Where that's going, I, I don't know, but I'm interested to see. I'm enjoying my 60s enormously. It sounds like it. Yeah, I am, yeah. Well, Richard Coles, I've really enjoyed this journey, and uh, I, I wish you all power to your elbow and to your spirit. Well, thank you, Charles. It's been really nice talking to you. It was really lovely seeing Richard again and spending some time talking about his fascinating life and career. I hope you enjoyed it too. You'll find links to Richard's new novel in our episode description. Remember to follow and subscribe to Snowcast from wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, bye for now. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.